Good morning. Please open up your New Testament to the book of James. We'll be looking at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 this morning. It is great to be able to share God's word with you today. James chapter 4, we'll read verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's been said that some people don't plan to fail, they just fail to plan. I kind of like that statement. It focuses on the need for us to be intentional about how we live our lives, to plan ahead so that our ultimate objectives can be met. If we don't plan, it's difficult to get the tasks done that need to be accomplished so that we can meet our goals. Other things will sneak in and steal the time that we need to get where we want to go. But we must ask ourselves this question. When we plan, do we consider God? Or do we see ourselves as individual, independent contractors, so to speak? Perhaps we allow God to be involved in certain aspects of our lives, but not necessarily all of our lives, and we shut him out of those. The passage before us is about planning and God's will, and what I want to do this morning is to break our text up into three questions. The first question is this. What did the recipients of this letter say about planning? Secondly, how did James respond to what they said about planning? And then thirdly, how should the recipients have actually planned? So those are the three questions we want to ask this morning. First of all, what did the recipients of this letter say about planning? Just look at the first part of verse 13. Come now, you who say. Well, who is you? Who is you who say? Go back to chapter 1. As we look at James just as a whole, for just a quick moment, James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. James is writing to Jewish brethren. He's writing to believers who were Jews who were now outside of the Palestinian area, and they were called part of the dispersion. And if if we wonder about this, them being brethren, if you look at verse 2, it says, Consider all joy, my brethren. If you look at verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. If you look at verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren. He's writing to brethren. Some 15 times, at least in this letter, he uses the term brethren. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So throughout this this letter, James is writing to these Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We will see the significance of that shortly. And some of these believers were what we might call traveling or itinerant merchants. Uh, they would pack up their camels and they would go to various cities um, and do their business trying to make some money. And what enabled that to happen was the Roman peace and the roads that existed uh, during that time providing that foundation. But just breaking down verse, four, verse um, let me go back to James 4, verse 13. He says, Come now you who say, and this is what they say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. They have a time frame. Today or tomorrow. Bags might have already been packed. Camels might have been loaded. Or they were getting ready to go tomorrow. Get some breakfast and take off. And they had an end time to this. They were going to spend a year there. So there's clearly parameters when we're going and when we're coming back. And what are they going to do? They're going to engage in business and they're going to make a profit. Perhaps they were going to go to some cities like Antioch or Damascus or Alexandria, some of the larger cities of that day. So that was the scenario. You've got these industrious individuals within the church bodies Jewish believers who wanted to go out and make some money. It sounds pretty good. We are to be industrious. We are to be hard workers. We are to make money. We're not to live off of other people. We are to make money when we are able to do that. We are to work hard. But there was a problem. Let's look at it. Look at James' response here in, in verse 14. What was his response? First of all, he says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. They lack knowledge about tomorrow. Just like you and I lack knowledge about tomorrow. There is an uncertainty about our lives and about what's going to happen the rest of today and tomorrow. A year ago this month, my sister who lives in Pennsylvania left her house in her car to get some blood drawn. Little did she know that on her way she would be involved in a horrific accident where another driver illegally went through an intersection and rammed into the front passenger side of her Honda Civic. The hairbags went off, the horn went off. Before she knew it, the ambulance was there. She was taken out on a stretcher from her car and taken to the ER. She ended up with two broken wrists, broken sternum, six cracked ribs. She's doing well now. I know I brought that to you to pray about probably about a year ago. But she's doing well. But she had no idea when she got out of bed that morning that that was going to happen. None of us know what will happen tomorrow. And that is James's point. I talked to a neighbor earlier, uh, a week or so ago, and I just asked him how he was doing. He said, well, he said, my wife's in the hospital. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I've been there all night. He said, she came down with appendicitis, um, but the infection was so bad, she now had to be put on antibiotics. Go home, found out later, and then go back in again when she's ready to have her appendix taken out. No idea whatsoever that she was going to be in the hospital at that time. In December of 2007, I received a very unexpected and heartbreaking phone call. I was told that my dad had died. Was he sick? No. Was I expecting to hear that? No. Passed away in his sleep. Probably a heart attack. 
My sister and I lost our dad that day, and our mom lost her husband. No idea that that was going to happen that day. Life is full of uncertainty. It is full of the unknown. We do not know what tomorrow may bring, James says. But as believers, we do know something. We know that God is very much involved in our lives. The Bible very succinctly says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That is God's plan for you and for me to be conformed to the image of his Son. And various events come about in our lives. Sometimes we never understand them, but God knows what's going on. He has a plan, and we can know if we love God, that he is working all things together for good. I've heard over the years a number of people say to me this. They say, everything happens for a reason. That sounds so good. And the people who listen to it sounds, wow, that's really, that's really heady. That's really comforting. It's not true if you don't know God and love God. The text I just shared from says to all who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so God can be working in your lives, but as believers, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That is his plan to conform us to the image of Christ. We might not like it. It might be excruciatingly painful, but it is nevertheless true. And although the events of our life are unknowable, we know that God is on work in the unknowable. Notice that along with the uncertainty of life here in verse 14, James goes on to say, and this is really encouraging stuff here, he says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I don't know about you, I've, I've loved watching football over the years. I've loved watching the Green Bay Packers play in Green Bay. And on those cold, frigid days, all you can see is this breath coming out of all the individual players. It goes up and puff, it's gone. And that's the idea of what James is talking about here. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Life is short. It goes by fast. Chuck Swindoll has said, about the time your face clears up, your mind gets fuzzy. <laughs> and honestly, the way that James writes here doesn't sound very encouraging. It comes across like we're sort of insignificant, just a vapor that appears for a little while. And if you happen to be a hot shot, or you know somebody who's a hot shot, this might be a good phrase for you to realize really where you are or where your friend might be. As I heard one pastor say in a sermon on this, he said, we're simply a drop of water in the ocean of eternity. That's pretty humbling. Nevertheless, you and I are totally significant to God. The psalmist says in 139, speaking of the Lord, he said, you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. 
my frame, literally my bones, was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. God has made us and we are not junk. The Bible speaks of God caring for us, casting all your anxiety upon us. Why? Because he cares for you. And Paul in Romans 8 says, If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How significant you are to God that he gave his only son to die on that cruel cross for you and for me. So we have these itinerants, itinerant merchants making plans to get on their camels, go to a city, engage in business and make a profit, make some money. James's response, he says, well, you can go and make your plans about the future, but you know, you guys don't even know about tomorrow. And that part about knowing about the future and about knowing tomorrow is key because if you go down a couple of verses in verse 16, notice what their attitude was. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, presumptuous planners. You have it all together. You think you're just going to go hop on your camels. Everything's going to happen tomorrow the way it should be. Going to stay there a year. No problems. Going to make a profit. Okay. They were boasting in their arrogance. That was what was going on behind what we can read about here. They thought they had the world on a string. And yet the Bible says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Well, how should the recipients have planned? That's our third question. How should they have planned? He says in verse 15, instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. These brethren, these apparent Christians, businessmen were totally leaving God out of the picture of their business lives. It was almost like their lives were compartmentalized. If they were believers, they would have loved God and loved Jesus Christ. But it appears that if that was the case, there was a compartment of their lives that they just wanted to do their own thing. Ladies, I, I, I just brought this along today. This is an old pocketbook of my wife's and what amazes me and for many of you here I'm amazed at the efficiency of my wife and her ability to handle pocketbooks I mean this this has zipper here you know go open it up a zipper here two zippers up here one over here there's all kind of compartments and places to put things and I have to give it to you ladies you're so I mean, there's antacid pills in there. You know, if I need something, there's a, there's a pen, and I always forget to give it back to my wife. But there's all kinds of good stuff in that pocketbook, and there's compartments in it. And we have to be reminded that just like there are those compartments, we have compartments in our lives. And all those compartments belong to God. We don't own any of them. Notice a couple of things on what James says here. When he says, if the Lord wills, we should, we should say that. I don't necessarily believe that he's saying we have to verbalize that and go out our day ten times saying, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. James is, bottom line, talking about a heart attitude, a willingness in our heart and spirit to do the Lord's will in our lives. It's not like a formula 
you know, where we say it and then that we, we did the right thing, but our heart could be far away from our statement. Isn't that, that what Jesus really prayed when he was in the garden? He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we need to ask that question. Is that our heart's attitude? Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Or could there be a, a touch of self-reliance or just simply wanting to do our own thing? Our attitude might, should not be like that and expressed in the verse of William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's not who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. He is the captain. We submit ourselves to him. We live our lives in submission to the will of God. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said there are only two kinds of people in the, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. The second thing about God's will here, it says if the Lord wills, we will live or also do this or that. If the Lord wills reminds us that God is a person and that God has a will, God has a plan. That will is found, bottom line, generally speaking, in the word of God. We read of things like, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, or rejoice in the Lord always, or rejoice and pray without ceasing and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There are clear statements and parameters about what God's will is. And the Bible is full of commands and, and, and precepts and teaching um, about how we are to live so we go to God's word first to find out what that will is. But there's also a will of God, a purpose for God, a plan of God that we don't find in here. A personal will for you and for me. I, I think of Ephesians 1.1 where Paul says that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul didn't find anything written that said he was going to be an apostle, but that's the position that God called him to. That was God's will for the Apostle Paul. And likewise, God has a will for you and for me that we can't directly locate in Scripture. We can find principles about some of the questions we have about what that will is for me. So, for instance, should I get married? If so, who should I get married to? Should I go to college? What kind of career should I have? Should I homeschool my kids? Should I buy the house on Cherry Lane or should I rent the one on Oak Street? The one on Cherry Lane is really nice. Let me mention that to you. Should I take this job or that job? And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But before we do that, go back to verse 15. Notice two things here in verse 15. Notice he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. First thing he talks about there is simply our existence. If the Lord wills, we will live to see tomorrow. Our existence lies in the hand of God. 
we are all just a heartbeat away. This phrase encourages us to live in a humble state. If the Lord wills, we will live. Realizing our continued existence relates to the will of God and our need to recognize that to keep us humble. The second aspect of this relates to our activities. If the Lord wills, we will live. That's our existence. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. So James is saying that our attitude regarding our activities needs to be one of submission to the will of God. And some of us might fear that. Might seem kind of scary. Warren Wiersbe tells the story of a time he was at a church youth conference and a perplexed teenager said to him, I would give my life to the Lord, but I'm afraid. Wiersbe said, what are you afraid of? The teen said, I'm afraid God will ask me to do something dangerous. Wiersbe said, the dangerous life is not in the will of God, but out of the will of God. The safest place in the world is right where God wants you. And I might also add that it could be dangerous, but better to be dangerous in the will of God than to be safe and to be out of the will of God. The encouraging, comforting news for us all is this. And this verse has meant a tremendous amount to me. In Romans chapter 12, it says that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It doesn't get any better than that. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Romans 12, verse 2. So be encouraged. It gets really tough sometimes. Being in the will of God does not mean it's going to be easy. But there's no other place that I would rather be. Back to the text, verse 15. How do we figure out what the this or that is? If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. How do we determine what the this or that is? What's the decision of this? What's the decision? When I decided to marry my wife, Donna, I did not see a cloud up in the sky that said in bright, big letters, marry Donna Holt. But I knew <laughs> I knew So how do we as believers make these decisions? When there's a fork in the road, how do we know if we should take the one on the left or take the one on the right? Do we wait for a shiver in our liver to happen? Is there a manuscript that God's going to drop down and say, here are the 1,051 answers that you're going to need in the next two years? Let me give you a few thoughts. First of all, God's word provides the foundation for making godly decisions. And God's will will never, ever, ever contradict God's word. God's will will never, ever, ever contradict God's word. God cannot contradict himself, so that is an impossibility. God will not guide you 
to marry an unbeliever because God's word is very clear about that. God's word will not lead you to divorce your spouse because he has lost his, his handsomeness or she has lost her attractiveness or they've just kind of changed a little bit, you know, over the last 35, 40 years. I think I'd like to move on. No, can't do that. God won't lead you to commit adultery. God won't lead you to slander people or to gossip. We ask the question, what does God's word say? First of all. Secondly, we pray. We bring the matter before God and become totally honest with him and be willing to follow his guiding hand. Thirdly, we seek wise and godly counsel. The book of Proverbs is full of this, but Proverbs 12 verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And jot down Proverbs 19.20 if you like. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Fourthly, consider the circumstances. God can open doors. God can bring about events in our lives to bring us to a certain decision. God can also close certain doors. But don't totally rely on your circumstances. Just imagine that you're on a really tight budget. You're struggling to make things meet in your home. You might be single. You might be married with a family. You're just struggling financially. You've got a job that's okay, but you're not making a lot of money. But you need another car. And you're driving along 95 one day. And as you're driving along, in the left lane comes this beautiful Maserati. It just, just leaves you in the dust. That was a Maserati. And you keep driving along a little more and another car passes you. It's a Porsche. A Porsche goes by in the left lane, just leaves you in the dust. Fifteen minutes later, another Maserati blows by you. You say, Lord, I need a new car. Is it the Maserati or the Porsche? It's got to be the Maserati because I had two of them and not just one go by me. That's not how we make wise decisions. We pray and we seek counsel and we consider the word of God. And then ultimately we trust. We have to make a decision. And we trust God when we've gone through various scenarios to guide us in the right way. And the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. This struck me this week in, in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. But the few verses before that, he says, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So Paul wanted to come to them. He prayed about it. He planned, he hoped that he could go. He was prevented from going. Something prevented him from happening. Maybe the circumstance. And then he realized that the will of God was integral to it all. That's Romans 1.10 and Romans 1.13. So the key to proper planning is this. Men, women, and children. It's in the conjunction if. 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 Instead, you ought to say if. 
the Lord wills. You can go on with your plans. You can develop all kinds of things to make money. But we need to have that word, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. James is not saying that planning is wrong. What he is saying is that planning without God is wrong. If denotes a willingness to do what God wants us to do. If denotes a submission to our God as king. And we can write books on how to discover the will of God. And we can go through all of these things. But if that if is missing, if we're not considering what the will of God is, we're not going to find it. We're not going to do the right thing. We have to seek the will of God. We are not to compartmentalize our lives. We are to give him all of our lives. Look at James 4, beginning at verse 4. He says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And then verse 7, submit, therefore, to God. To submit literally means to line up under. That is our responsibility, to line up under God, the king of the universe, the one who created us. And lastly, just look at verse 17 to close this section. He says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Boasting in verse 16 in their arrogance was evil. Now knowing the right thing to do and not doing it, James just flatly calls sin. There's no sugarcoating it. That's what it is. And as one author said, in reality, the will of God is not an option. It is an obligation. And if we go our own way, we can lead ourselves to the disciplinary hand of God. So what have we learned today? We've learned that there is uncertainty about today and tomorrow. And yet we know in our uncertainty that God is at work to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is brevity in our lives. They are short. We must not be boastful and arrogant about our plans. We are not to be independent rebels, but we are to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. I used to play checkers when I was a kid. I've played some checkers with my grandson, Kellen, over the last couple of years. And one of my goals when we get to the checkerboard is for me to get to a place on that checkerboard or I move one of my circles over to the end of the board and I can say two words, king me, king me. Because when I get kinged, I can now do whatever I want. And I couldn't do that before. God is in essence saying to us, king me. Make me king in your life. Give me full reign in your life. 
Let's pray together.